We're going to be covering a lot of stuff. We're going to be talking about the flood tonight, chapter 7 and 8. Now, I know there's a lot of things we can say about the flood, and it seems like right now, during our culture, it seems to be proofs. Everyone wants to know, is there proof? Is there scientific proof of the flood? And some want to debate, was it a limited flood? Was it a global flood, a universal type flood? And let me just say, we're not going to spend any time on that except to say this, that I have read and I understand both sides of this argument. There's three arguments, one that it didn't even happen. And I've read and I understand all these things, but let me remind you that the Bible is not a science book. The Bible is something completely different. It's what we, we gain wisdom through the Bible. And so with that being said, I guess I do need to say a little bit about it in just that this, in just this, that when it comes to limited or universal flood, to me, the limited interpretation seems to be the weaker of the two arguments. And so you may disagree, and that's totally fine. This is not a salvation issue when it comes to, was it a universal flood, global, or was it a limited flood, just the, the, airy, the area there of, of Babylonia. So for me, though, the text, the clear language of the text seems to state that God was bringing a universal judgment. And in chapter 6 and verse 12, I'll just say this. It says, all flesh had corrupted God's way upon the earth. And it says all flesh. All flesh had been corrupted, uh, had corrupted God's way upon the earth. So we don't know how, how far civiliza civilization had spread throughout the planet. But we do know this, that wherever humans went, Sin had to be judged. And so the flood bears witness to a universal sin. So in my mind, then there had to be a universal judgment. So I'm sticking with the universal flood. And if you want to talk about it another time, want to come share your ideas, let's contact me and we can do that. I can give you other references of things that I've read. So that's all I'm going to say about that. I know other people would like to talk more about that, but we're not going to tonight. Um, so we're in the week seven of our verse-by-verse -verse teaching on the study in the book of Genesis. Open your Bibles to chapter seven. We're going to begin there. And before we do, I, I think I should probably do just a quick review before we uh, start reading. Remember that we are looking at Genesis as our foundational story, and not a distant story, but, but our story, the story of us. It's not a story that happened just so long ago we can't relate Adam and Eve is the story of all of us. Cain and Abel is the story of all of us. Noah is the story of all of us. And during our time, we have come to realize, as we've gone through the book of Genesis, that we can ask the wrong questions. Or we can use our modern mindset and analyze the scriptures, and we can miss things when we do that, when we look at it from a modern perspective. So we want to jump into the sandals of these ancient readers and first, think about what did they see, what did they hear, how did they apply it to their lives. And remember this, if we miss the beginning of a story, if we don't get the foundation right of the story, this is why we're doing Genesis. It's so good to go back and do it. Because if we don't get that right, we might not get everything we ought to out of the rest of the story, the whole story. Remember, the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. The Bible was written some three 4,000 years ago, this, these scriptures that we're going over today. So what did these people under hear? What did they hear? What did they understand? How did they see it? So chapter 1, if you remember, was the story of creation. 
And in our modern mindset, we want to ask how. How did God create everything out of nothing? And how many days did it take? And we want to analyze all that thing. We want, we want to throw in science to it, but science wasn't part of the ancient people's mindset. They were asking who. They were asking who did the creating. And we read throughout the Bible that Yahweh, the one true God, did all the creating throughout the Bible, and his greatest creation was us. It was mankind. And we are to reflect God's image, the Bible tells us. We are to mirror him. We are to be a reflection of God and to take what we saw God doing in creation and in the garden and ourselves are to go and reflect that image and we are to bring up light and goodness and, and order to disorder throughout the world. The problem is we're not very good at it. It's like we fail time and time again. We don't measure up, but yet God has always given us a ray of hope, a, a light in a dark place to encourage us. Adam and Eve, as you remember, they were rebuilt after they had sinned in the garden, so to speak. They, God clothed them, and God gave them this promise of the coming snake crusher that was going to crush the head of, of the snake of Satan, as we know today. But he sends them out of the garden and he says, look, it's not going to be easy. And we're still paying the price today that they were going to work. And it was going to be a toil and they were going to struggle. But they were still to be a reflection of God's image, to bring order and light and life to an unhealthy world. And they were pretty successful. They were partly successful, I should say. They definitely multiplied greatly. And then in chapter 4, it was all about Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. And Adam had relations with his wife, it said. Then they have these kids, and these kids don't get along, and there's this feud between these two brothers and these family members, and that leads to the first murder and more broken relationships. And so again, it just seems like man cannot seem to get our act together. We just keep failing time and time again, but God does not give up on us. He gives us hope, and in this case, he gives hope through Seth. And through Seth, Seth was, was appointed to Eve as a replacement for her son Abel. And through Seth, we would find Noah. And that brings us up to where we are today. Now again, we can look at this as an ancient story. But it really, it very much is our story. And so we need to be thinking, how do you see yourself here? What can you learn from these passages tonight? So go ahead and open to chapter 7. We're going to begin in... Verse 1, and the Bible says this, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household. For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean too, a male and his female. Now this term, clean animals, refers to animals that are fit for sacrifice. Noah takes seven pairs of these animals because later on he's going to sacrifice some of these animals after the flood in gratitude to the Lord. Now the unclean animals, he just takes one pair and they're not up for sacrifice. If you did that, then you would totally destroy the, the, the species. So in verse 3, it says, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. And I will not blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah 
was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were open. Now, stop there for a second. It's interesting. When you examine the timeline that we just talked about before uh, and during the flood account, in verse 1, it says that, Noah, or that God tells Noah to enter into the ark. And then it says that after seven more days, he's going to send rain for 40 days and for 40 nights. So we have this week where he enters into the ark, and it's like a week of preparation. He goes in, he doesn't. They all go in, they don't come out. And they're preparing the ark. They're, they're maybe getting the cages or whatever they had set up, the stalls for the animals. I imagine maybe throwing a, around some fresh hay, getting the food all packed and secured and ready to go, getting their sleeping quarters all ready to go. And this is a week of preparation. They, they, they prepared the animals. They put their, their supplies away. They followed everything that the Lord had told them to do. And there was nothing for them to fear. They weren't afraid of the animals. They weren't afraid of the people outside. They weren't afraid of each other. They weren't afraid about being alone forever, who knows how long, inside the ark. Because when you trust the Lord, as they trusted the Lord, there is no fear. Love drives drives out all fear and they knew they were loved by the lord but at the end of this final week of preparation after they'd been doing this for seven days it says that god in verse 16 and we'll get to that in a minute it says that god shuts the door and made it safe for them and i think about how this and we're going to read that how god shuts the door now you think about what the people outside can you imagine what the people outside must have been saying they shut the door like there's no rain yet. There, there's nothing. It's dry. And they're looking at the people and they're, maybe they're yelling out to them, Oh man, you have totally lost it. You religious zealot. You brainwashed. All the different things you can imagine that people would be ridiculing these people in the boat because there's no water. But they shut the door to keep them safe. They're thinking, this dude, he built a boat in the only place you can't build a boat. On dry land. And then verse 12 happens. And verse 12 says, The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and for 40 nights. Now I imagine that the people outside of the ark, when the rain started, the ground started getting soggy, and it got up to their knees and up to their waist, and then they ran up to the hills or high ground, and then it filled up the high ground, and it got up to their chest, and it got up to their neck. They're screaming. They're beaten on the ark if they could get there. They're saying, Noah, we're, we're sorry. We believe. Let us in. Please, Noah. But it was too late. Their time was, was over. And it breaks my heart, church, to think that this very thing will happen again at some time. When Jesus returns, people that I know and people that I love will be in the same place the same position. I believe, I'm sorry. 
but it'll be too late. Whenever that is that Jesus comes back, that's going to be the same scene played out all over the world. And so we have to be motivated to gently and lovingly try to bring, pre- try to bring people to a place of belief in the Lord. Now this number 40, 40 days and 40 nights, it, for, the number 40 is a special number in the Bible. It usually signifies like an ordained uh, time of testing. Remember like in the Bible how the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. Moses went up to Mount Sinai and there he stayed for 40 days and for 40 nights. Jesus, he went into the desert and fasted and was tempted after 40 days and 40 nights. And then here, the flood, the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So you see, whenever you see this number 40, you know it's about to recount a time of testing, a time of your faith being, being put to the test. In verse 13, we read on. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Jepheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. Now, wait a sec. Stop right there. How did all of these animals get along? How did these, all of these animals exercise and keep from tearing into each other? Look, we, we don't know for sure but we know a God who created all things out of nothing is capable of doing anything. Maybe God gave him a, a hibernation type, put him in a hibernation state like bears do. And, and they weren't prone to attack. They were more lethargic and they didn't need the exercise. We don't know how it happened, but we do know God did it because God controls nature and God controls animals. In verse 15, it says, So they went into the ark to Noah by two of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind them. Forgot a slide, there you go. So God says shuts the door. He shuts the hatch, if you want to call it that, on the ark. And in the Bible and in our world, God is still in control. It was God who shut the door. Wasn't these guys pulling it up It was God said, now's the time. God shut the door to keep him safe. Now, Noah didn't go around trying to round up all the animals. God is in control. The animals were selected by God. And so he probably selected young ones, probably didn't select the full-grown beast. He selected young, healthy beasts of each kind. And we do know this, that the animals weren't afraid. They weren't afraid of each other. They weren't afraid about getting on the boat. They weren't afraid of the people. They weren't afraid about how they were going to get their next meal. God is in control. How comforting, how how affirming is it to know that God is in control of all nature and all nature submits to God. In verse 17, it says that the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished 
birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Now, in this section that we just read, you find these three sections, verses 1 through 5, 6 through 12, and 13 through 24. And each section is basically telling the same story about getting ready, boarding the flood, and the flood. But each one adds new details. And, and we see that this is another example of the author repeating the account of the same event. We saw that in the beginning in chapters 1 and 2. You remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2 and on goes on to recount the six days of creation. But when you get to chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, the author does the same thing. He starts repeating, but he adds different details. The author is doing this to help move the story along. But each detail that they add is important to the story development. And that's what we see right here going on. It could be a different sequence as it was in chapter 2 from chapter 1. Different details, but the same thing is going on here in chapter 7. We get to verse 8, and I love this part, that it says that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. Now I want to talk about this for a few extra minutes. I want to camp out here, if you will, for a couple minutes, because this phrase, there's a couple phrases here that are just super important. This first phrase, God remembered. This phrase doesn't mean that God previously forgotten something and then all of a sudden remembered it. This phrase means to pay attention to or a decision to act. To pay attention to or a decision to act. So it's telling us that the God, the creator of heavens and earth, he makes a decision to act. That he remembered Noah. He makes a decision to act to pay attention to Noah and all the beasts, the cattle, everything that's in the ark. So he's fully in command of the forces of nature, and it says that he causes a wind to pass over the surface of the earth. Now, the earth was covered with water, and this reminds me of the surface of the deep, how the Spirit of God in chapter 1 was hovering, one version says, over the deep. Now, this word Wind is the same Hebrew word for spirit, ruach. And it's basically saying that he caused his spirit to pass over the surface of the deep. It sounds a lot like chapter 1 and verse 2, doesn't it? There's a parallel between the creation account and this new beginning. God right here is beginning to prepare the earth for man because the earth is now void. The, the earth is now wasteland. You guys remember the word for waste and empty? Tohu, vavohu. 
That's the Hebrew word for it. And now the earth is formless and void. It was full of water. And again, God is in full command of the forces of nature. So God makes this decision to act. And, and he causes wind to pass over the earth. And this phrase, God caused, is such an important verse. Uh, such an important phrase, I'm sorry. Because it says that God caused the winds to pass over the earth. Basically, God caused the fountains of the deep to close. God caused the floodgates of the sky to close. God caused the rain to be restrained. Now, why is this important? Here's why. Uh, phrases like that, when you see them in the Bible, they're added there to, to give you a desired effect of awe and wonder. Not so much for us, but for the peoples back then, these ancient peoples, they read that, there's just awe and wonder. Because let me give you a, a reminder. Most of the world back then, they worshipped pagan gods. They worshipped the sun and the moon, and they worshipped rivers and springs and, and plants and the crops. So this phrase, God caused, turns everything upside down in their, in their minds. The author is saying, Yahweh, the one true God, He created the gods that you worship. And all of your gods that you are worshiping, they're subservient to Yahweh, the one true God. Just turns everything upside down. Their minds are just blown by that, by that simple statement. Everything in their pagan culture just blows up. And I think right here we really find a great application to our culture. So we jumped into their sandals. We jumped into their skin. We see what they feel, what they thought. Now let's get back into us, to our culture. There's a great application to us today. Now we look back at this and we think, God, these people, how dumb can you, do you have to be to worship the sun or the moon? And, but listen, these people that we're calling pagans, they weren't stupid. They weren't dumb. I argue that they're just untouched by biblical principles, much like things are today. Today, we largely live in a post-biblical world. It's the truth. And that means that many people have already gone back to or reverted back to pagan values and pagan beliefs. For instance, the elevation of nature. You see it all over the world right now. For many, nature is, is taking on a godlike status in, in their lives. And listen, if there's no God, I mean, if, if, if there's no God higher than nature and man is more, not more important than nature, then nothing is higher than nature. Do you understand what I'm saying? And that can be the mind, mindset. But listen, I love our planet. The Bible teaches us that we do need to take care of it. I preached a whole half a sermon about it. We do need to do a better job of taking care of the planet and nature. But there are serious moral prices to be paid for elevating nature. Chief among them is that human beings, us, we cease to have special, special value that's stated in the Bible that we are created in God's image, that we are the greatest thing, the most precious thing that God created. Or let me say it this way, when we elevate nature above man, then humankind cease to have the special value that the Bible talks about. And that's very dangerous. You see, the Bible 
has a God-centered and a man-centered view of the world. Theocentric, God-centered. Anthropocentric, man-centered. The Bible has both in the Bible. And so as the God-centered view collapses in society, so does the man-centered view. If there is no God, then whose image are we created in? The answer is no one's. And then man becomes nothing more than stardust. You've probably heard that, haven't you? Stardust. That's exactly what Satan wants us to believe. And listen, Satan can use good people to convince you. There's a good man, a, a, a guy I really admire. His name is Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, an American um, astrophysicist. And I would love to hang out with him. He's funny. He's super, super smart. But he literally said, we are not only figuratively, but literally stardust. The British physicist and atheist Stephen Hawking, we all know him. He, he put it this way. He said, we humans are just mere collections of fundamental particles of nature. Look, Satan can use good people for bad things. And the notion that the world was created for man's sake is a biblical principle. Now, there's a great difference between being a space particle and being created in God's own image. Are you with me? You understand what I'm telling you? Huge difference. As nature is elevated... Man is reduced. It's not surprising then that we see what is going on with the unborn. It's a direct result of a society separated from biblical principles. So as Christians, we need to care more about the earth and, and, and mother nature. That's true in it's biblical, and we've been directed to do that. We need to be that guerrilla gardeners that we spoke about a couple weeks back and, and bring light and life and order to dark places in the world. And, but yet, at the same time, we need to be gently and lovingly but truthfully teaching biblical principles in a post-biblical world. We got to be careful. In verse 3, it says, And the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made and he sent out a raven and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark. For the water 
was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. Now it's interesting, this thing here about the raven to me. It says that God, after 40 days, that Noah opened up the window, that little hatch that he put on the top that he had made by direction of God, and he lets out this raven. And, and this raven, it says, flew here and there until the water dried up from the earth, but the raven didn't return. And then a little bit later, he sends out a dove. And the dove comes back to the ark, and the Bible says that the dove found no place to set his foot upon the earth. So when the dove is flying around, it found no satisfaction in all the floating carcasses that were on top of the water. However, the raven, when he was sent out, instead of being repelled and repulsed by the dead, rotting carcasses, he found that his salivary glands are working overtime. He found that his appetite was totally restored. That's just the type of bird the raven is. And, and sometimes I just can't help myself. I, I see application all the time. And, I, and this has nothing to do with the passages we're in right here. But yet, I, the raven... He gets a bad rap sometimes, and, and here's why. In Leviticus chapter 11, the Bible says this about these unclean animals. It says, These, moreover, you shall detest among the birds. They are abhorrent not to be eaten, the eagle and the vulture and the buzzard and the kite, that was another form of attack bird, and the falcon in its kind. Every raven in its kind. Now, ravens scare me. I don't really like ravens. Every time I see them in my backyard, it seems like they're being chased by other little birds. And in my mind, going, oh, they got the egg. Oh, ravens are always like in scary movies is evil. And like the omen, there's a raven. And the scariest, the stand. Did you ever see the stand? That raven is like Satan. And yet in spite of the raven's culinary delights, God loves the ravens. God cares. God uses ravens throughout the Bible. Remember, God used the raven to provide for Elijah at Cherith. These little, he brought Elijah these little meat sandwiches in his, in his beak. Elijah's thinking he's going to die, and God sends the raven. God uses a raven. And like I said, ravens get a bad rap. Like ravens can't be used. Stay away from the raven. I'm afraid of the raven, but have you ever felt like a raven? Have you ever been judged like a raven? I have. Before I even entered the kingdom of God, I, I was a raven. If you were to describe a, an animal, I was looking for rotting carcass type. I mean, I would describe myself that way. I was judged. Maybe you felt judged. Maybe you don't feel like you can be used. But God loves you, and God wants to use you. And if God can use a raven, look, I'm proof. God can use us. 
In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 6, it says, The ravens, speaking of Elijah, The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. God loves the ravens. In Job 38, verse 41, Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young, when its young cry to God and wander about without food? God loves ravens. Psalm 147, verse 9 says, He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. How much more does God love you and want to use you more than a raven? In verse 10, we go on. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out a dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out a dove, but she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the six hundred excuse me, now it came about in the six hundred and first year of the first month on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month of the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. So it says that a week later, Noah sends out this a third time, a dove, and it didn't return. So he knew, he knew that the water had dried up. But did you notice he didn't make a move? He didn't say, okay, time to go, open the door. He didn't make a move. He stayed there until the Lord told him to leave. It says that the earth dried up on day one of month one. But he didn't leave until month two of day 27. (laughs) Noah waited upon the Lord to guide. When God guides, God provides. And he waited, he waited until God spoke to him, and he waited till God told him, now's the time to leave. That was probably, in my mind, the hardest part. Like they'd been in the ark like over a year. And, and I'm thinking, no wonder God chose Noah. Obedient faith is our response to God's word. In Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and the hearing by the word of God. Noah and his family, they remain in the ark for a year. And that, they had to be going stir crazy. I'm thinking, no wonder God didn't choose me. He chose Noah because, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? For over a year. It's, Noah was chosen for many things. But probably the most important thing was his obedience to God's word. In verse 17, it says that bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Noah was like a second Adam. 
And it's okay just to say he was the second Adam. He, he made a new beginning for the human race. And you see the parallels there. God had brought the earth out of the water in the beginning, in creation. And he prepared it for Adam and Eve. And right here he's doing the same thing. He brings the world out of the water. And now he's preparing it for Noah and his family. Then the Lord gave Noah and his family the same mandate that he gave at the beginning to be fruitful and multiply. The, the thrust of this entire story, and really the story within the story, is, is that God is incredibly patient for the people that he loves. Just as God was patient with humanity in the Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve and everything that happened there, so we see that here in the time of Noah. And, and church, I, I believe we are in the time of Noah now. And God has been incredibly patient. Humanity, humanity has been running God's good world through a meat grinder, ruining it ruining each other in so many ways. And so in this passion of to protect the goodness of God's world, God washes it clean with the great flood. God waited for over a century for men to repent in this story of Noah. And some scholars believe that he actually gave him almost a thousand years. I mentioned it last time that maybe Enoch walked with God because God told Enoch, when your son Methuselah dies, that's when I'm going to destroy the world. Methuselah died the year of the flood. 969 years went by. God's never-ending patience for people that he loves. I'm reminded of Isaiah 55 and verse 6 where it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. I believe we're in the time of Noah. We need to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. In verse 20, as we begin to close out, it says that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the, on an altar. Noah was so filled with gratitude that his first act was to lead his family into worship. And he builds this altar and he sacrifices one of these seven pairs of clean animals to the Lord. And then in verse 21, it says that the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Cease. When you see this phrase there in verse 21, that the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, it doesn't mean that the Lord eats the sacrifice, okay? Like, like the pagan gods. Because the pagan gods, their life was determined by the sacrifices that the people gave over to those gods, that the food that the men provided was to sustain the gods. This phrase means that God recognized the sacrifice as an act of gratitude. And God vowed never to curse the earth again 
But there's no implication at all that God regretted his decision because it was the right decision. It needed to be done. And God ached for the decisions that we made in our free will. God knows everything. He knows it before it happens and he knows the choices you will make. And yet God gives us the free will to make those choices. God didn't regret it. It ends with the guarantee in Genesis 22 or 8.22 that God is not going to destroy the earth, that the seasons will continue, the years will continue. He gives us hope and courage as we are to face the unknown today, tomorrow, next year, for our children. So each time we go to bed for the night or we wake up in the morning, or we turn our calendar page, we should be reminded that God is concerned about our planet, about the nature, but He's mostly concerned about its inhabitants. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you again for just your word, Father. It can be so challenging sometimes, and Father, it fills me with emotion so often when I think about how much you must ache. Father, you love us so much and you made us in your image and yet to see your children acting out as if we never knew you is, I, I, I can't imagine what that must feel like. So Father, would you be comforted as we hear from you and be comforted in any way that there are many who consider themselves a remnant. And Father, we strive to bring other people to know you and be changed ourselves. And yet we know because we fail all the time that you sent your son to forgive us and to cleanse us just as water cleansed the earth. Jesus' blood cleanses us now. Father, give us a clear mind and the words to speak to those who do not understand and would not choose to come to you. Give us just a superhuman power, Father, to love them, to encourage them and to convince them that you are the only way. Father, thank you for this night. In Jesus I pray, amen.